put it somewhere around here. We're good. She's just starting the recording. Welcome, everyone. I am so thankful to already see answers to prayer and how uh, well this is attended. Um, I am so thankful, Bill, that you're here. Uh, I was praying that you would sit. I mean, as soon as the idea hit me, I started praying for it. Was it was it Janelle or Patty who emailed me and said, there's this great teaching at Covenant Fellowship, you should go? One of you did. Right, it was, yeah, I thought it was Janelle. And thanks for that. And I just sat there going, I was, I was kind of in a place where I knew I couldn't attend, and I thought, boy, but our church needs this. And it was just kind of a random idea, well, maybe he can, maybe he can bring it to us. And just fired off an email and prayed and kind of forgot about it, and then he graciously said yes. And I've just been praying about it ever since, just thanking God that you're coming. I know that uh, this is a timely topic for our church. Um, and as I was driving here, I was considering the fact that God uses his word to produce this teaching, but that God has also used this man's lifetime to produce this teaching. And, and, and he's done that. Everything Bill has done for Risen Hope Church. And how exciting is that? So I'm just going to pray for us. And I will do my best to, uh, and then I'll just get out of the way. So, Father, thank you so much uh, for showing your love to us in sending your son to die for us. You have redeemed uh, every person in this room who, who is called by your name. And we were all your enemies. We were all not interested. And you scooped us up as we were running away. Uh, and, and, and you made us yours. And you saved us into a battle. We're in a war, and we need wisdom. So we ask that we cannot listen well without the help of your spirit. We can't, Bill can't teach well without the help of your spirit. We ask that you would bring truth clearly to him. We ask that the enemy would be bound and frustrated and defeated through the words spoken today. We ask that the fruit from this teaching would 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 roll out across our lives, across the history of this church, and across the generations, Father God. Do your work in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 It's good to be with you again. I don't remember the last time I was here. I guess I, I, guess I brought a pro-life message back a couple of years back. Great to see you. Uh, I bring you greetings from Covenant Fellowship. We met this morning. Uh, so I busted down here right after church to get here on time, had a banana for lunch. It was enough. It was enough. Um, we're in a series that I think would encourage you. We're going through the book of Isaiah, but within the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 57, 58, 59, a series on justice and justice issues. Jared kicked us off, uh, Jared Mellinger, uh, and then Jared Torrance, who some of you know, preached last week on issues of, of justice, particularly uh, racial issues of justice. Powerful sermon. If you, if you can listen to it online, hear Jared Torrance. And then this morning, Rob Flood uh, spoke some more on justice. So uh, I bring you greetings from from home church, the old church. Welcome. Uh, if I could just give you a word of encouragement before I start this teaching. Uh, just in talking briefly with Andrew, I know that you know the church is going through some challenges. Um, 
I think it's rare in any church that they aren't going through some challenges at any point in time. Uh, the challenges sort of oscillate, but they're never gone. Uh, and they're always oscillating above that, that line where, there's, where everything is fine. There's always challenges that we're facing. But I've been, uh, we've been going through the book of Isaiah in the, in the home church, and you see so many glorious promises of all that God is going to do, particularly when the exile is over. For those of you who know the history of, of Israel, they went into exile, and you read the book of Isaiah, and, and it's so filled with such glorious promises. And they're going to come back to the land. The nations are going to extreme to them. The Lord is going to protect them. This Messiah is going to come. It's going to be glory, and, and God's people will be righteous. And it, you won't. Everybody will. Everybody will be following the Lord. I mean, the vision is a glorious vision that you read about in Isaiah. But knowing the history, we know that Ezra and Nehemiah brought them back, and it was tough going. And they had opposition from the get. Difficult, and rather than all of the Lord's people completely obeying the Lord, they're marrying foreign wives, Ezra and Nehemiah grieving. And then, of course, we know that it was a very long time before most of those promises, aside from their return to the land and rebuilding the temple, it would be another 400 years before many of those promises would begin to be fulfilled in the Messiah. So we're going through Isaiah. In church, and in my personal devotions, I'm reading Calvin's commentary on the book of Daniel. Not just the, I've been deep into the prophetic sections, not the first six chapters, which are narrative, uh, but the later chapters, which are prophecies about coming kingdoms and all this trouble and all this upheaval in the world, four successive kingdoms. Persia will be followed by Greece, will be followed by Rome. Prior to that, it's going to be the Babylonian. Daniel's distraught because he realizes that, it, that all the things that he was hoping about when he would read Isaiah were going to be somewhat delayed. But God, in, in those prophecies of Daniel, comforted the remnant and was saying basically, look, it's going to be hard. There's going to be times where the people of God are quite overwhelmed and the land is quite overwhelmed. But I'm sovereign in all of it. And it's all going to issue forth in the coming of salvation, in the coming of Jesus Christ. So I've taken heart personally in reflecting on many churches that are having struggles that uh, this is nothing new to God's people. For 400 years, kingdom after kingdom went through that land where the remnant lived. And it was not easy. They were, they were levying taxes. They were defiling the temple. Terrible things were happening. And yet, in the end, Messiah came. So we have a great hope. So let me just leave you with that hope before we get into this stuff on spiritual warfare. Um, do not despair. We are exactly where God wants us to be. He knows exactly what He's doing. And it's going to issue forth in glory. One way or the other. Whether we live to see it or not. I trust we will.
Okay, let's, uh, let's go in our Bibles to uh, James chapter 4 real quick. I'll spring from, from James 4. While you're turning there, we're talking about spiritual warfare. This is some material, or this is actually, this material was developed uh, back around 2001, 2002. Uh, and... Uh, we got talking about uh, about this subject of spiritual warfare and the need for some teaching, and amongst the elders at Covenant Fellowship. And I shot an email to Jared and said I developed some material, you know, more than ten years ago that might be useful for us to discuss as elders. I brought it to the elders. Mark wanted me to bring it to the prophecy team, and then some of you who were there at the prophecy team wanted me to bring it here. So this. This is not new material, and a lot of it's based on a book written by a, a brother who just recently went to glory, David Pallison, died maybe two weeks ago. In uh, a book, a, one of his lesser-known books, Reclaiming Spiritual Warfare. I think it's out of print, but it's quite good. It was addressing a, he was correcting a lot of wrong thinking that he was encountering in his counseling ministry as as he was helping people deal with very significant problems in their lives. The material is drawn largely from that, but I think it's still relevant today. The whole question of spiritual warfare, the whole question of demons, the whole question of uh, casting out demons and deliverance ministry, all that is still very much a hot topic. Uh, in fact, uh, I brought a couple of articles. A while ago I did a sermon uh, at Brandywine Grace on uh, the gathering demonia, and I held up this article. The Great Exorcism Boom. Uh, from Manila to Mexico City, Catholic priests are leading a new and sometimes spectacular crusade against demonic possession. Exorcism has become so popular worldwide that, it's <clears throat> that now it's not only performed on tormented individuals, but entire nations. A few months ago, uh, Mexico, the second largest Catholic country, was exorcised of its demons in an unprecedented rite of exorcismo mag magno performed in secret in the sand in a particular city there it goes on to describe how 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 uh, how exorcism is you know is something that people are really wanting people see the evil in the world and they they see the evil in their lives in their families and they they think well maybe you know casting out demons is the answer that was a few years back I thought well let me I'm coming to I'm coming to risen hope let me let me see if there's anything more I type in, here's an article from early 2019. Driving out the devil, what's behind the exorcism boom? From Cameroon to the United States, Catholics are seeking liberation from demonic forces. And it goes on to explain how uh, the Pope is very much behind this, having, having done his ministry in South America, where Pentecostals have greatly influenced the thinking of people. And casting out demons is a big deal and widely practiced. And the Catholics, of course, have picked up on it. So it's a hot topic still. Uh, and there's a lot of misconceptions out there that I hope to address. My basic intention is to try and move us away from some of the mistaken thinking about spiritual warfare and move us towards more classical Protestant thinking when it comes to spiritual warfare and how it's conducted. 
James chapter 4. Let's just look at verse 1. And this is not an exegetical teaching. This is topical. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war? Are at war within you. You desire and you do not have. Now let's look at verse 4 in that same chapter. Gosh, the print in this Bible is small. This is not the one I usually preach. (laughs) You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? There's another warfare term. Enmity. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And then in verses 7 to 10, he says, as a, as a remedy, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your heart, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. So spiritual warfare, the spiritual warfare scene over the last 30 years uh, has been interesting to say the least. You'll remember in the 1990s there were, some of you will remember, some of you weren't born, one or two of you. (laughs) Novels that the novels that came out that emphasized demonic activity throughout the 90s and then on into the early 2000s, spiritual warfare was equated with warfare prayer. When you've ever heard of warfare prayer, all right? And uh, and worship warfare. We're going to worship, and that's going to that's going to drive out the demonic forces, like what happened, you know, when they when Jehoshaphat worshipped. And the enemies of God were defeated. There's strategic level warfare, which involved spiritual mapping, where we're trying to identify what the demonic forces and powers are in different geographic regions, or different neighborhoods, or even different houses. What are the demonic forces over this? And how do we engage them and drive them away? So... My feeling is, my conviction is, is that, is that the views behind a lot of that popular teaching is too narrowly focused on the devil and his e- evil angels. And it leads to practices which can't be supported biblically. <clears throat> James understood spiritual warfare, as we've just read, on three fronts. There is a battle against sinful desires. There's a battle against our love for the world. And there's a battle against our enemy, the devil. So there's three levels. Doing spiritual warfare in the minds of many contemporary Christians tends to ignore the ongoing warfare with indwelling sin and its lusts. So when people think of spiritual warfare, they're not at all thinking about the battling our own remaining sin and the intense warfare that's engaged there. That doesn't come to mind. 
I think contemporary approaches can be careless with the world's influence. You don't realize, well, they don't, people don't realize how much progress the enemy is making in people's lives, how much bondage he's bringing them into through the influence of the world. So that tends to be somewhat neglected. And then I think when they do engage to fight, they're fighting with unbiblical methods. So my appeal in this talk is to do, learn to do spiritual warfare in the classic mode, which is what it's called in Pallison's book. I'm calling for a return to Protestant and Puritan views of spiritual warfare. You think Puritans, spiritual warfare? Like, I think of Pentecostals when I think of spiritual. I don't think of Puritans. But think for a minute. Here's what Pattinson says. Puritan pastoral theologians wrote frequently and with great depth on spiritual warfare. As they wrote about scripture, the devil, and human nature, they were alert to the evil and deceptive strategies of Satan. At the same time, they made heart-searching analysis of the human condition. So Puritans wrote books, Thomas Brooks, wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Paul Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, also wrote a book called Holy War. William Gurnall wrote a book called The Christian in Complete Armor. So let's just for a minute, let me take a little bit of time to critique some of the contemporary approaches that most of us are familiar with. We've encountered to one degree or another, and I know for myself, I actually practice quite a number of these things uh, myself. So I think, first of all, contemporary approaches take casting out to extremes. The idea of casting out or driving out the devil. In the charismatic movement, which I was a part of in the 70s, it swept across my college campus and I was swept up in it, uh, we discovered that we could still cast out demons. And that was a big deal. It's like, we never heard of that in my Presbyterian church. We, we discovered, hey, we can cast out demons. And they leave. I mean, it was, it was amazing uh, to discover that Christians today still had that power. But we also learned a few years in that casting out the devil and casting out demons wasn't a panacea. It by no means solved all people's, people's problems. So people were battling with a whole range of destructive behaviors and while casting out demons helped some of them, by no means did it help them all. It was not universally effective, which it was a clue that there's more to doing spiritual warfare than just casting out a devil. Right? So that, that began to dawn on us. And I think in those early days, we falsely applied to every imaginable situation what was a legitimate casting out model of helping demonized individuals. So Pallison in his book, instead of using the word casting out, he's intellectual, he's a seminary professor, he uses the word ek ballistic. Ek means out, ballistic means throw, like a ballistic missile, right? So he, he, in categorizing this approach to doing ministry, this approach to helping people, he called it ecbalistic ministry, where we are throwing out the devil. So we took ecbalistic ministry, I think, to extremes. 
Uh, and a range of theories and methodologies emerged out of that. We didn't originate the teachings. We were receiving them. Teachings on binding the strong man. And you still hear, hear people praying this way. We bind and loose. All right? But that springs from a poor exegesis of Matthew 12. Jesus is the one who binds the strong man. All right? Uh, binding and the whole idea of loosing, binding and loosing, not just binding the strong man, but binding and loosing, springs from a poor understanding of Matthew 18, which is talking about the church. The whole idea of rebuking territorial spirits, which became popular pretty much after most of us had backed away from that. There was the groups that we were hanging with, they kept going with it and began talking about rebuking territorial spirits, which is really springing from a wrong understanding of Daniel 10. And then there's the whole thing of curses and generational curses and curses on people, uh, curses that can be passed along. And a lot of that springs out of a wrong understanding of Galatians 3.13, which is not talking about demonic curses, but the curse of the law. So there were a range of methodologies which were fundamentally sub-biblical. And rebuking demons, casting out demons, became the spiritual warfare template of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Christians. Second of all, I think contemporary approaches neglect the doctrine of sin. They neglect the doctrine of sin. So grateful for C.J. Mahaney who began teaching the doctrine of sin and our understanding of spiritual warfare was broadened. So Kim Riddlebarger uh, wrote this. He said, since many evangelicals no longer view the world around them as Protestants historically have, through the doctrines of creation, the fall, and redemption, there's no doctrine of original sin left from which to form the category necessary for making sense of evil and suffering. Consequently, we shift to a metaphysical war between the good God and his angel, angels and the bad God and his demons. Listen to this. The problem, he says, is no longer viewed as being the inherent sinfulness residing in the shadowy darkness of my own human heart and the resulting rebellion against God and His Word. Instead, the problem is outside of me. It's conspiracies, it's secular humanists, it's demons. I think that's, that's exactly right. We don't understand the implications of the fall. And so in order to make sense out of evil, it's, it's natural to think it must, be, it must all be coming from demons. It must be, it must be the bad God and his, and his powers. That's, that's less than robust theology. When we learn the doctrine of remaining sin, the nature of the battle changes and the battlefield shifts from meta metaphysical realm to my heart. I love what Ralph Venning says. <laughs> He's got a book he wrote, I read it years ago, called The Sinfulness of Sin. Like how sinful really is sin? I mean, it's really sinful. It's really bad. And he's, he's trying to make the case that sin is even worse than the devil. 
And he says, sin can do without the devil what the devil cannot do without sin. Sin can do without any help from demons what the devil can't do without sin. And he makes the point, it's sin that made the devil what he is. So sin is a more fundamental, basic problem than even the devil. So indwelling sin, the Bible teaches, is it's ever active. A lot of us have heard teaching on this. I won't belabor it. But just to summarize what the Bible teaches, it teaches us that indwelling sin seizes every opportunity. Sin in our own hearts seizes opportunity. It produces every kind of covetous desire. It constantly deceives us, Romans 7. It's living inside of us, again, Romans 7. It's at work in all of our faculties. It's hostile to God, Romans 8. It wages war within. Not the devil remaining sin. So John Owen in his wonderful sixth volume uh, of his works where he talks about sin and temptation says when talking about indwelling sin he says he who dies fighting this warfare assuredly dies a conqueror. If, if you go to your grave having fought your remaining sin you will die a Sinclair Ferguson, more recent writer, says the believer must daily exercise, daily exercise himself in this spiritual warfare so that he may succeed. So basically, if we're not fighting indwelling sin, we're not going to be victorious. That's a huge part of our spiritual warfare. Second, contemporary approaches forget God's sovereignty. I want to leave this with you guys. Um, it's an article by John Piper. I'll leave it. You can make copies and give it to people. Celebrate that God is sovereign over Satan's delegated world rules. Celebrate that God is sovereign over Satan's angels. Celebrate that God is sovereign over Satan's hand in persecution. Celebrate that God is sovereign over Satan's life-taking power, etc., etc. Contemporary approaches tend to here, tend to neglect the sovereignty of God. They forget about God's sovereignty. Generally, a guy named Lowe who's writing on strategic level warfare says strategic level spirits dominate an area. They control a town. These terms share the concept of custodianship or sovereignty. But in fact, God is sovereign over them. Dave Pallison says this, God's sovereign authority over Satan could not be emphasized more strongly in the Bible. Satan is only the false god of this world. He plays out his malice on the stage of the earth, but his works on the earth will be destroyed. He exists at God's forbearance to fulfill God's purposes. In the occult worldview, the demons have independent existence. But right from the start, the biblical worldview shows that evil spirits are radically subordinate to the Almighty who alone is God. In my devotions, reading the book of Daniel, Daniel's talking about these unfolding kingdoms and, and what some of these terrible kings are going to do. And even ways that it's going it's to hurt 
and be a challenge for God's people. And yet God has ordered it all. He's, he's, he's over it all. He's setting the stage for the coming of Christ. He's making it so the whole Mediterranean world speaks Greek. So that there'll be a common language through which the gospel can be disseminated. God is outworking His purposes even through the evil of demons and evil kings. Um, Pallison also says, evil spirit beings exist within the sovereignty of God's purposes to redeem and judge responsible human beings. Without this understanding, spiritual warfare becomes skewed. The demons become increasingly autonomous. Sin becomes demonized. And the world gains the look and feel of superstition rather than biblical wisdom. In this demon-filled world, human vigilance must strike the deciding blow in battle. The Bible gives an opposite, theocentric, that just means God-centered, explanation. There, the love of God strikes the deciding blow in battle. We take refuge in our shepherd's care, learning vigilance, putting on his armor, and strengthening our arms with the strength of his might. I love what he says when, when he says that it gains the look and feel of superstition. And I think many of us have felt that when at times we've been in different church settings where people are embracing some of these more contemporary ideas, which really resonate very strongly with medieval Catholicism, which was superstitious, which Luther and Calvin said, this is superstition. This is not biblical. And we felt that. We thought something's not quite right here. Uh, even though you know, I believe the vast majority of the people who are practicing that way mean well. They're trying to help people. They're trying to you know, release the power of God. I hold nothing against them. I just think we need to, we need to think differently. Okay. Contemporary approaches also misunderstand victory. And this is very insightful, I thought. Our battle is a moral battle. Hence, our victories are moral victories. Our battle is not against the circumstances. Our battle is a moral battle. Let me, let me unpack that a little bit. Pallison again says, Notice in the Genesis account the nature of our warfare. Satan is malicious, a liar, and a murderer. He himself is morally evil, and he's judged as such. He tempts, deceives, and seeks to rule Adam and Eve, conforming them to evil. The core issue in our spiritual warfare is a moral issue. Who will rule our hearts? Whose voice will we listen to? Who will we believe? Who will we trust for blessings? Who will we obey? Will we prove obedient creatures or disobedient? Good or evil? Now, all those are moral categories. He says, our battle is not primarily against the evil situations that occur or situational evil. We seek to relieve situational evil by, by every means. So when, there's, when somebody is in a situation, when somebody has a bad problem, we seek to relieve it in every way that we can. We pray. We fast. We go to the doctor. 
We pray that evil people would repent or evil nations would repent. We pray and work uh, and, and plead with the Lord that evil institutions would turn, that promote institutional evil. But the, our battle is not primarily about making the evil go away. Ephesians 6, the armor is not designed to get rid of the evil day. It's to help us stand. We don the armor of God so that we might stand in the evil day, not so that we can cast the evil day out. Right? Lowe, again in his book on territorial spirits, critiquing them, says, Though Satan has been decisively defeated, he is engaged in a desperate counterattack against the church. We feel that. Our role is to hold our ground in the strength provided by the traditional spiritual disciplines. We conquer Satan not by overwhelming all opposition to the gospel through some type of spiritual strategic level warfare, but by remaining firm in the face of opposition to stand in the evil day. So spiritual victory is defeating moral evil with the Spirit's power. And that begins right here. So, alright, so that's my critique of sort of contemporary ecbalistic approaches to spiritual warfare. How do we do spiritual warfare in the classic mode? Well, some of this I've already said. We fight indwelling sin. The Bible calls it mortification. We mortify or put to death remaining sin. Resist the devil. Love not the world. Kill sin. This is, this is our approach to spiritual warfare. We're commanded to kill or put to death or mortify the remainders of sin as long as we're in the, in the body. To quote from Owen, volume 6 of his works, Rise mightily against the first actings of thy distemper, of, thy, of your sinful inclinations. Rise mightily against them. Rise mightily against its first conceptions. Suffer it not to get the least ground. As sin gets ground in the affections or the emotions to delight in, it gets ground also upon the understanding to slight it. If it have allowance for one step, it will take another. Dost thou find thy corruption to begin to entangle thy thoughts? Rise up with all thy strength against it with no less indignation than if it had fully accomplished what it aims for. Those temptations, what's with sin in our hearts, it's got an objective and it's trying to move you there to your ruin. So deal with that. Fight. Second of all, watch. Do you find sin dwelling in you, always present with you, exciting itself or putting forth its poison with facility, that means with ease, at all times and in all your duties, when you want to do what's good, what humiliation, what self-abasement, what intenseness in prayer, what diligence, what watchfulness does this call for at your hand? 
Oh, brothers and sisters, if we would fight there, what a difference it would make in our lives. So, we fight remaining sin. Second of all, we fight the influence of the world in our lives. John warns us, love not the world or the things of the world. The world and its desires are passing away. James tells us that friendship with the world, we just read it, is what? Is enmity with God. And I think it's interesting that John says in his in the first epistle, the spirit of Antichrist is in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is in the world. It's the world that we have to be wary of. Because the spirit of Antichrist permeates the world. It is against Christ and against what's good for humanity. So we fight the influence of the world in our lives. And third, we fight the devil. How do we fight the devil? How do we resist? Do we bind? Do we cast out? Well, James says, draw near to God with faith and humility. Peter says, exercise self-control, alertness, and faith that stands. Paul says, put on the armor. So this is the biblical approach to fighting the devil. We put on the belt of truth, which is as we seek to understand and sincerely apply Scripture and sound doctrine. We gird ourselves with the truth. We stake everything upon the truth. We put on the breastplate of righteousness by receiving afresh the God's gift of righteousness. This protects our hearts from, from condemnation. It enables us to stand up again when we've been knocked down. Oh, if we don't have His righteousness to comfort us, we won't get up and fight again. We put on the shoes of the Gospel as we're mindful of our desperate need for the cross. We remind ourselves of the Gospel daily. We're ready to share the Gospel. We take up the shield of faith when we trust God who has ordained every trial. We take up the shield of faith when we believe His promises. When we believe His promises. We put on the helmet of salvation when we remember the absolute certainty of our ultimate deliverance. We take up the sword of the Spirit when we fill our hearts with the Word of God through reading, study, instruction, meditation, and memorization. And finally, Paul says, going through Ephesians 6, the armor of God, he mentions prayer. And I think in that context, he's not calling for prayer as a separate weapon, but rather as something which pervades the use of all the armor. We are to pray continually, especially in the evil day. Lowe, in his book discussing these matters, says, central to our warfare strategy are diligent labor, patient endurance, and above all, persistent prayer. So that's that's a snapshot of spiritual warfare in the classic mode, and that's what I'm advocating for. I'm saying let's move away from some of those other things which are not really rooted in a clear understanding of Scripture, and let's move into back into the classic mode, which our fathers, the Reformers, the, the Protestants who have gone before us, pointed us to when they moved away from the superstitions of the Catholic Church. 
So that's that's essentially my teaching. Uh, when I gave this to the prophecy team, to the when I shared some of these thoughts with the elders at Covenant Fellowship, I added some updated thoughts. So let me just share those with you real quick. As a continuationist, a person who believes the gifts of the Spirit continue, I believe that Christians have authority to rebuke demons and command them to leave. The twelve were given that authority, as were the seventy. Paul and Philip exercised that authority after Christ rose and ascended to his Father. They're still casting out demons. My own view, my own personal sense, my, my gut feeling is that ecbalistic phenomena where, where demons are fleeing from people in very obvious and outward ways, that that's normal during seasons when the Holy Spirit is poured out. So even when you read accounts of Protestants who are not continuationists and they're giving account of the, you know, the Great Awakening, they're preaching the gospel. People falling are, are falling down and they're shrieking loudly. Like what is that? Could it be that as the Spirit is poured out, that the demons are driven out? Absolutely. That's what I think is going on because you see that in Acts chapter eight. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was said by Philip when they heard him and when they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying out with a loud voice. And many were healed. And there was much joy in that city. I think when the Spirit of God is poured out, like happened to us in the charismatic movement when I was a college student in the 70s, we saw people delivered from demons. And then, you know, we realize, well, this doesn't solve all their problems. There's still major discipline issues. They're not in the Word. You know, thank God casting out the demon brought some relief. It didn't solve all the problems. We needed to move into classic mode spiritual warfare after that. But I believe it's normative when the Spirit is poured out. So if you in Risen Hope Church or us up at Covenant Fellowship, you know, if we have a time when the Spirit of God is poured out, I'm not going to be surprised at all if people start getting delivered. And, and the demons leave in a way that is manifest and obvious. So I just want to underscore that point. Um, another thought is uh, we shouldn't assume, as a lot of people do still today, that ecbalistic ministry is the right approach for those who are involved in the occult. So somebody was involved in the occult at some point in the past, they've come to the Christian, well, we have to cast out demons. Not necessarily. But that was sort of like, the, you know, absolutely, that's what you do. Um, or when people are bound in gross moral evil. So somebody you find out is involved in like really bad sin. I don't think necessarily that what's called for, what's going to help that person most is to cast out demons. I think again, it's it's it's... We can, we can do that. We can try that. But I think classic mode spiritual warfare is called for. And also for those who are suffering mental illness. Um, you know, if you see a person who's, who's psychotic, they're out of their minds. They're not thinking rationally. They're like living in the middle of a nightmare. It doesn't take a lot of discernment to see that, you know, there's probably demonic forces that are... That are exploiting that person's weakness. But I don't necessarily think that demons are the, are the fundamental cause. 
I think, it, you know, demons get busy when people are losing their minds. Just like they do when people are, are drunk. The demons will exploit that person's weakness, but I don't know that that's the cure. Like what that person needs is deliverance. I'm not saying we can't do deliverance. But I think it's doing deliverance with people who are suffering from mental illness can be really bad. Because if their underlying problem is a physical mental illness, something is not right working right with their brain, right? They're, they're awake, but they're living in a nightmare. And you cast out demons, and they're still sick? They're left hopeless. They're left hopeless. So I think we have to be real careful in, in, in treating people who are suffering a season of mental illness uh, with just going to ecbalistic ministry. Uh, that's the default. Because we discern the presence of evil. Not necessarily. Care is required. Uh, another thought, sort of post this teaching, is the activity of demons is broad and not narrow. <clears throat> look, demons, there's a sense in which I, I'm trying to say, look, get your mind on Christ and the gospel and his word and your own sin and try and put on the armor and fight that. On the other hand, demonic influence is everywhere. I don't want to say there's a demon around every corner, but there is. Demons are active through our words. Demon can be using you through what you say. The tongue is a fire, says James. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire. And the last clause is this. And is set on fire by hell. That's demonic. People are slandering fellow Christians. Could those words be set on fire by hell? The tongue is a world of evil among the parts of the body. Demons are active in our bitterness. Demons are active in our jealousy, in our ambitions. They will exploit them. How do you know? James 3. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, spiritual, and what's the last word there? Demonic. Demonic. Jealousy and selfish ambition. Demons are pushing that up. They're exploiting the, our unmortified remaining sin. They're active. They want to destroy and the way we defeat them is not to is not to start casting out demons. Demonic forces are in at work in and through the sons of disobedience, and they don't even know it. You remember Peter said, "Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And Jesus said to him, "Flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven." Like. Peter would have said, oh, I got a revelation. Thou art the Christ. He didn't even realize that the Father revealed it to him. I think in the same way, the devil is influencing people's thinking and using them to do his destructive work. You were following the course of this world before we were Christians, following the 
prince of the power of the air. That's our enemy. The spirit, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We believe that the Spirit of God is at work in us. When we're relating to unbelievers, when they share the gospel, you share the gospel with them, the Spirit of God begins to give them conviction. Maybe they come to bridge. That's the Spirit of God using you, working through you. Could the enemy be working in the same way through the people in the world? Absolutely. He's now at work in the sons of disobedience to advance his purposes. Well, the book of Revelation reveals a great spiritual warfare. We see the dragon who's a counterfeit god, the beast who's a counterfeit authority, the false prophet who's a counterfeit religion opposing God, and the prostitute who's a counterfeit bride. The book of Revelation shows the attacked and persecuted church overcoming enormous assault from all of those forces. The beast, the false prophet, prostitute, the dragon. How do they overcome? By repentance, by prayer, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, by faithfulness to the end. Not by casting them out. In Revelation, to the poor, persecuted, and slandered church at Smyrna, slandered by so-called Jews who were not Jews, but of the synagogue of Satan, Jesus said, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you shall have tribulation. Now, if some people, when they got a revelation that the devil was going to persecute them for, for ten days and send some people to jail, well, we better cast them out. <laughs> We better stop that. That's not what Jesus says. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He sucked over it all. Their victory would not be ecbalistic. It would be moral. And through their suffering, they would be like Christ, whose victory was moral through His suffering. We will suffer. Our call is to be faithful and righteous through it. And God will use it to His glory. And Satan will be cast out once and for all. You know, all our ecbalistic hopes and dreams when we were (laughs) wide-eyed charismatics and like like these people were going to cast the devil out of all of Mexico. Yeah, like that's really helped. You know, since they did that. Like, like the drug trade has stopped? I don't think so. The enemy has ceased because they, they exercised all the demons out of Mexico? I don't think so. But there's a day coming when there'll be no more demons in Mexico. Jesus is coming back. And if you want to get a picture of what it's going to be like, see him when he cast the, the demons out of the gathering demoniac. I think that's, a, that's got an eschatological, at end times, thread running through that story. What happened to those demons? They went into the pigs. Where do the pigs go with those demons? 
off the cliff into the lake. That's a picture of a lake of fire. Jesus commands them to go. So all our equalistic hopes and dreams will be fulfilled on that day. Let me take some questions, all right? And uh, I don't even know how long I've gone. Hopefully not too long. I went an hour? Almost an hour. Get out. <laughs> Sorry. I, I don't like to keep people longer than 45 minutes. No, no, I want to comfort you. But somebody said it almost. It wasn't almost. <laughs> you didn't get up there. As a preacher, I feel <laughs> <laughs> You didn't start until about 25 minutes. Okay, so 50 minutes. I'm five minutes over my, my time. <laughs> but this was kind of thrown together. So any questions about about any of this? Uh, I know it may be new for some of you. Before we launch too deep into that, can we just express our gratitude? Oh, I feel appreciated. Your attentiveness was all the thanks I needed. Uh, yeah, any questions? Pat. So I guess when we're not sure, and uh, we go back to the days of the charismatic renewal, we did cast out demons. Uh, we can always attempt that if the Lord is leading us down. Yeah, I would say be careful, particularly in cases uh, where a person is really depressed or a person's mentally ill. Right. Yeah. Where they can, they can, their hopes can soar that this is going to. You know, that, ah, we finally discovered the problem, I'm demonized, you know, and they leave, if they still have a struggle, because there's something physical going on, they can feel like either we weren't powerful enough to get rid of the demons, I have demons, I can't get rid of them, and that can tempt them to suicide. Uh, or they're going to feel like, uh, you know, there's no hope for me. So I think, I think... I, I'm, I take a very cautious approach before seeking to cast demons out of people. Just because of the, I want to be careful of the psychological effect on that person. Uh, if they're, you know, if they're a person who's easygoing, isn't, isn't prone to condemnation, isn't prone to depression, isn't going to go down those roads, sure. See if it helps. Anything else? Well, I've seen demons cast out. Uh, one thing is said, it doesn't guarantee that the problems are going to go. That's right. They, at that particular point, I've seen, I've seen a woman. She wasn't good looking. But uh, once the demons cast out, she looked like an angel. Yeah. But that didn't take away her problems. Yeah, her problems. Okay, well, it's hot. I know you're hot. So, Andrew, Tim, anything further? Yeah, I think I, I thank you, Bill. Uh, yes. Just good teaching, grounding teaching. I, I think uh, uh, I think we need to take the demonic seriously because, as you've indicated, there's a demonic influence everywhere all yeah. the time. Yeah. But we need to be aware of a kind of magic approach to the demonic, that if we have the right phrase, if we have the right prayer, if we have the right faith, if we have the right uh, incantation almost, yeah. Yeah. That, that this can just drive this away. Um, the reality is that we have to go to war with sin. Yeah. Uh, 
we have to go to war with our own hearts and with the influences of the world and of the devil upon our hearts. Uh, but that's that's where real spiritual warfare happens. And I just appreciate that grounding here, Bill. Uh, it's a very helpful foundation. So in the uh, miracle services, like the Toronto blessing and Robbie and Catherine Coleman, uh, I go back. You're going way back. <laughs> You're going to Catherine Coleman in yeah. the 60s now. <laughs> There's a lot of healing associated yes. with the deliverance as well. Yeah. And uh, how did those two interact? Uh, well, clearly, uh, there's a connection. Uh, there's a connection between sickness and demons. I, I don't think we can say that all, all sickness is demons. Uh, likewise, I don't think we can say any, you know, that no sickness is demons. Or somehow demonically uh, provoked. You'll remember in the case of Job, the Lord said, you can afflict his body. The answer there was Job's faithfulness. He was commended for his faithfulness. And again, they didn't take, there wasn't a casting out when he was healed that we know of. He was healed when the brothers prayed for him. So there's a connection there. Uh, again, it's all under the sovereignty of God. So I think we, we do everything we can to get rid of the sickness. Um, we go to the doctors, we, we pray urgently. But if a person's not healed, it doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't delivered. And if they're sick, it doesn't necessarily mean they, they, that they have a demon by any stretch. Yeah. So let's know I'm wide open for correction. But there's some of us who look back to the late 80s, early 90s. Yes. Of Covenant Fellowship. And there was a certain atmosphere that we say, why are we not experiencing that today? So the question is, are we romanticizing some of the movement of the spirit there? Is that normalized and we have gotten away from it? Or oh, I love I love that season. You know, that was glory coming down. Yeah. Um, you know how about my children? Yeah, we long for our children to experience what we experienced. Um, I think my children, my my oldest three, uh, were old enough to experience that. My youngers too. I have no clue. We don't even know that hardly that it even happened. We experienced a real outpouring uh, during some years of coming to fellowship. We had Wednesday night meetings. I remember driving to those meetings thinking God's spirit is falling and manifesting in powerful ways, and all these people don't know about it. You know, I'm driving by the car <laughs> experience God because the spirit of God was being poured out I, well, I, I used to tell Dave Harvey you know let's let's relish this because it's not always going to be this this season will end and this season is this time of refreshing has been given to us to strengthen us for what lies ahead. God has His purposes in it, but it's not going to last forever. Let's enjoy it while we have it, not worry so much about how people are processing it. Let's do our best to, to put it in 
framework of a biblical theology, uh, you know, that let's, in, let's not worry about it so much that we don't enjoy it, because this is not always going to be with us. I'd read enough history to know that these things come and go. And I had already experienced it once with a charismatic outpouring. I remember when, you know, in the early days, when I was a college student, junior year, you'd come up to somebody who didn't know Jesus at all. Can I pray for you? You'd lay hands on them and they would start speaking in tongues. Now, I have a hard time even fitting that into my theology today. I don't understand how that happened. Maybe, maybe they were already like nominal Christians or something from... Sunday school, but you know, that ended. We would lay hands and pray for people for a half an hour, nothing would happen. You know, you wouldn't hardly get your hand on the person when that was happening, and they'd start speaking in tongues. And then they stopped speaking in tongues, and then nothing happened for five or ten years. And then one day, Alan Redrup and I go down to this meeting in Baltimore, this guy named John Wimber. <laughs> The place is packed. It's the Civic Center in, in what do they call it? Uh, the Inner Harbor. Yeah, so we're there, and I'm standing in the back. There's a couple thousand people there. John begins to minister. I begin to feel waves of, the, of his spirit, like, like kind of pushing me back, like you're standing in the shore. You know how you sort of, when the waves are coming. I felt like this is the oddest thing. I'm experiencing that, but I'm not standing in, you know, I'm not at the beach. I'm standing in the back of the auditorium. What is this? You know, this, is this the Holy Spirit? I don't know. We got back to a prayer meeting the following Saturday. Adam and I told people, we went to this wonderful meeting, really fascinating teaching, talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of people were having all these wonderful experiences. Uh, you know, it was quite something for us to see, and that was about it. And we decided to end the meeting with a time of prayer. A guy named Fred Cato had come up, come up, came up and he said, will you pray? I said, I said to Fred, sure. Um, I had been praying for people, you know, for for ten years, and nothing happened. Nothing. I mean, before that, we prayed for people; they would speak in tongues. Now, Fred Cato says, "Will you pray for me?" I said, "Sure." So I lay my hands on him. I close my eyes. I open my eyes, and he's not there. <laughs> I think he left. And then I looked on the ground. He was he was laying on the ground, shaking. Right. Alan had prayed for Andy Farmer. Andy Farmer had rolled up against the wall, and it was like he was trying to roll up the wall, <laughs> trembling, and it broke loose. I came to an end. You know, we rode that wave for six months, and it ended. It's kind of just gradually waned away. So, I, you know, I'm far afield from your question. Your question is, why isn't that happening now? And I'd say because the Spirit's not being poured out right now. Well, what do we do about that? Well, we plead with the Lord to pour out a Spirit. But one of the things I think we need to remember is when we're there in the 1970s and we're college students and the Spirit of the Lord is hitting us out of the blue, there were people who'd been praying for 50 years for that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we need to, if I could just insert, I think we need to be careful as well of Bible phrase, not despising the day of small things, that sometimes we can get so focused on the sensational, the, the exciting, the thrilling, that we lose sight of the fact that God's normal way of working is in the ordinary of life. It's, yes. it's in the conversations. It's in the place of prayer. It's 
God pours out His Spirit in power from time to time. He pours out His Spirit in measure all the time. All the time. And so when you and I are, are just having a conversation where the Spirit's encouraging us, that's an outpouring of the Spirit. And we do live in a day when, eh, I was going to say in a day, it's always been this way, where the sensational is, is um, what everyone is pursuing. I mean, the Great Awakening and other revivals, uh, amazing things happened, uh, but that passed. Yep. And it became just the ordinary work of God. That's that's how God normally works, but for reasons known only to Him and for our joy, for our encouragement, there are times when He just kind of opens the heavens and He just just sets sends forth His Spirit and whoa, you know. So ordinary, keep praying for the extraordinary. Yeah. But be content in the ordinary. Kind of this. We're in two places at once. We're yep. content and longing for more yep. at the same time. Yep. I think it's also, there's a real danger, and you see this in history, like after the Great Awakening, when that wave of the Spirit began to wane, there were people who tried to keep it going. Yeah. Yeah. And it was bad. And that's where, and people then could say, people would come in and they could sense that it wasn't genuine. They could, right. you know, right. this isn't real, this is fake. Right. And, you know, I think people are tempted to imitate themselves when they were experiencing God when they're not uh, in the same way. And I think we have to resist that temptation. So in many ways I'm really proud of the fact that we're not we're not in that camp that's trying to you know crank that up again. We're dependent on the Lord. But what is a, a practical application in a continuous church or a continuationist, is that what we are? Yeah. Of, uh, That's one of the questions that Jared was asking uh, in our elders meeting. It's a very good question. Uh, and I don't know that I have a good answer. I, you know, I, I think that as Christians we can discern spirits. I don't think that it always means that we take an ecbalistic approach right. uh, when we discern the presence of people. I view it as sometimes just invitation to pray. Yeah. I think somebody asked that question in our in our seminar. Maybe Doug Gardner asked it. He told a story, or somebody told a story of uh, yeah, how they just like their kid was behaving like was acting really weird and strange, and this, this brother sensed that there was you know some demonic influence there. I think there were irrational fears that the child was going through, and and uh, laid his hands and just quietly commanded the demon to leave, and the child was fine from the one. Man, I mean, we can, as continuations, we can keep doing that sort of thing. Absolutely. Great question. In the Bible, uh, Jesus confronts uh, the demoniac to, what's your name? But we already know that Jesus probably already known. And is that a formula to kind of integrate when you're doing that holistic right. ministry to ask for the no no ministry. no I, no I wouldn't but to use discernment to say yeah. I believe there's something here in casting that out yeah um, I think that that's parallel yeah I think 
again, maybe to elaborate again on your question, I just had another thought. If you're discerning, if you're trying to minister to a person, even like, you know, on a one, yeah. like, a, like a friend or a relative or an acquaintance, um, and you sense, you know, the presence of, an unusual degree of the presence of evil, you could just simply ask, you know, can I just pray for you? And in your prayer, you know, just in a very low-key way, Lord, to the extent that there's any demonic oppression here, I pray you would know, uh, give this person a release from mm-hmm. in the name of Jesus. You know? <laughs> and that might have All right. Don't you guys have church to do still today? <laughs> Four o'clock. <laughs> what time is it now? Four to three. Four to three. Another hour. <laughs> can I take you to lunch? I, 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 can I just say one one uh, very practical application for Risen Hope? I think is appropriate. I wrote down four misconceptions in spiritual warfare for you, and one of them was failing to see the spiritual dimension in ordinary occurrences, and I think Tim did that as well. And one way we can sort of engage in the offensive uh, is, you know, uh, what is it, Tim, like 15 minutes before the service, 30 minutes before the service? Just a few guys, usually the pastors, and maybe one one or two other people gather towards the front of the church and pray for the service that day. You know, that is a, that is that is all three fronts the world, the flesh the devil, that is taking the biggest practical canon we have and using the resources you have uh, in faith to put God's energy behind it and so I just, if, if there's just one thing you feel called to do to apply this, I would say show up don't, don't have an extraordinary prayer, maybe don't even pray out loud just pray in your heart but God will honor that God will honor that, and people work through the preached word and worship. And um, so, Good. Bill, thank you again. You're welcome. And I'm I'm happy to sit here and hang out for another yeah. ten or fifteen minutes. Oh, another hour. <laughs> <laughs> Until what? Is it is it technically three thirty or three forty five? Three thirty five. Three thirty five. So we three thirty five. Anyone who's still here, we're going to go downstairs and and apply this excellent teaching. So, thank you. Thank you, everybody, so much. It's great to be here.